Welcome to episode 25 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. Joining us from the Polyamory's Me Too Survivor Support Pod regarding the accusations against Franklin Vo, we're going to fill in some blanks clarifying the nature and function of Survivor Pods and the origin of the term, as well as getting some updates on this particular pod. So, Samantha, welcome to the show. Can you tell our listeners a little about yourself to get us started? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Samantha Manowitz. I am a licensed independent clinical social worker currently out of the state of Massachusetts. However, this September, I will be starting a social work PhD program at University of Toronto with a sexual diversity studies graduate specialization. I am primarily on the pod for my expertise in relationship violence. I have extensive experience working with survivors of PTSD, primarily sexual trauma and relationship abuse. And I've also been working within the poly and kink community, and I identify as poly and kinky myself. So when your pod originally reached out to the show, it was because we badly mangled the concept of what a survivor pod was. We tried. <laughs> we- <laughs> <laughs> it was a good faith effort. I don't mangled might be. We a do appreciate strong. them coming to us and correcting us, but we tried. Damn it, we did, <laughs> and I appreciate that. They posted on the page that the Survivor Pod was not the survivors, it was the support group yeah. that supports the survivors. We managed to get it right on the show because I posted that update as an in-between show update, and then I was able to jury-rig the recording to make it sound like we said it right, and we absolutely <laughs> did not. That part of the show is very choppy because I just cut off pieces of our dialogue and jammed them together to make up a phrase that pretended that we said it right and cut out the area where we said survivors. <laughs> to be fair, a lot of have gotten this wrong not just this one it's kind of a new toolkit or or a a new to us toolkit it's got to start somewhere and we very much appreciate the correction because we we need to be corrected a lot sometimes (laughs) hey sometimes so do i and i occasionally teach other therapists how to do my job and i screw up sometimes and i get this stuff (laughs) wrong sometimes and so sometimes the best that we can do is own our stuff and correct (laughs) So then you sent us a link for the definition of a pod from the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. As I said, these kids that are new to us, but they are based in traditions that probably go back to before recorded time. But when I was reading this article by the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, and they say B-A-T-J, which I don't know is any easier to say. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) <laughs> they said that they came up with the word pod, at least. So I guess that's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read the, the quick definition that they wrote up there for our listeners, which is they said, your pod is made up of the people that you would call on if violence, harm, or abuse happened to you, or the people that you would call on if you wanted to support in taking accountability for violence, harm, or abuse that you've done, or if you've witnessed violence, or a lot. if someone you care about was being violent or being abused. Mm-hmm. It is a lot, and there's a lot more. It's a huge article. I'm going to link it. You should read it. It's a great article. Thank you. I'm not going to do the entire 
article, but there are a couple of high points that I wanted to note. One of them is that pod basically replaces for them, in their language, the word community, but has a specific context to it. So we've talked again about how different words have strong resonance with people meaning different things. So when they were trying to use community a certain specific way, people kept fighting them on it and going, well, this is what community means to me, and this is what community means to me, and they were like, we need a new word, mm-hmm. which is a great idea. It's common in philosophy. It's a great thing to do. It's why we often shift the language on this show into a, some kind of jargon. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to interrupt. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to understand. So it's, it's basically community with a purpose? An intentional community in the most literal sense of the term. Like, it is an intentional gathering of support people that can be any but with number a purpose, of sizes. right? With a purpose. Yeah. Okay. Which mm-hmm. is the literal part of the intentional. Well, and of course, okay. it's also a living concept, I think, because mm-hmm. as you read their different bullet points, it keeps sort of changing. It's kind of a moving target because they said, yeah. as we started using this concept, it developed and we learned certain things. One of the things they learned really early is not everybody has enough people to make a pod. Yeah. Right. So they use the term pod people <laughs> to discuss the people who, who meet these requirements for you. And they said, one of the things we learned early on is a lot of people have no pod people. Yeah. They're like, I got hurt. Who do I talk to? No one. Then the idea was, well, people will make pods when there are people that have enough people to make a pod, but then that pod will develop the language and tactics to help other people, and hopefully other people who didn't have pod people can contact that pod. So that's the, when you reached out to other survivors and said, open invitation if anyone else has a story and they don't have a support pod, you can join this one and we will support you. Yes. So it's this intentional community that's your community, but it's also once it's made this larger community effort, and Mm -hmm. the idea is to develop those skills in more and more people so that more people will have the kind of community that you could call on to make a pod. Absolutely. A little bit of a footnote here, because this is one of those aspects of our work. When we invite people to come in and share their stories, a lot of folks who are coming from a more litigious, for lack of a better word, or coming from the frame of our criminal justice system or more carcerate or or more elective structures will often Mm -hmm. interpret this call for story as a form of investigation. And so Mm -hmm. pushback that we have gotten from certain corners is, well, why are you collecting these stories and dragging things through the mud? How much evidence do you need? This sounds really biased against this person who caused harm because they don't understand that the purpose is not necessarily to conduct an investigation Mm -hmm. or to figure out who should be punished, but to make sure that people feel less alone. Right. And that was the second of the two terms that we were not originally up to date on that I feel not up to date on, but more up to date on, mm-hmm. which is transformative justice. Mm-hmm. So anybody that's ever gone into an intro philosophy classroom spent three months on justice and transformative justice wasn't in our list. So <laughs> I had to go research it and learn a little bit about it to get ready for this. It's the focus on transformative justice part of the pod that makes it not punitive and not investigative in the way that people think that it is in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I'm a philosophy nerd, I apologize, but I'm going to quickly do a justice thing. Obviously, there's a lot of ancient justice material mostly from the ancient Greeks but what we think of as most of our modern classifications for justice come out of Aristotle's justice specifically a book called that I don't think I can pronounce the Nicomachean Ethics and his three primary categories were distributive justice corrective justice and reciprocal 
empirical justice. He has two types of justice, and this is the subcategories of the type of justice that we mostly think about. Mm-hmm. Corrective justice is punishments being proportional to the crimes and gets broken into a couple of different categories later on in our culture, one of which being retributive justice, which is the idea that it is just to harm someone at the amount that they have harmed you, even if it helps no one. Mm. So, so like, if somebody shoots someone and they die, it's appropriate to shoot the person that shot them. Eye for an eye. Even if it had no function or doesn't help anybody. Actually, the eye for an eye part of my Torah portion during my bat mitzvah when I was 13. So learning all about that in Hebrew school. And I would say that for our criminal legal system, that's the primary type of justice most people think about. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so scary when someone says we're coming to get justice. Because the thought is, oh God, they're going to do something on the level of what happened or what they're claiming happened. Mm -hmm. So then the thought is, if you can prove that all these abuses happen, then this person deserves that level of abuse, maybe incarceration, hard time, whatever it is Mm -hmm. that's supposed to go with. More recently, there's some people that said, well, I don't really have an interest in just harming that person. I want to get back what's been taken as much as I can and that's retributive justice which was a relatively recent motion in these kind of critical circles and its idea is to restore as much as possible what's been taken as much as possible reparations for damages and though that is also something that has been integrated into our political system or our criminal system for sure right now what we're talking about is justice within some sort of official government structure and an official structure of power right now I'm not sure if y'all noticed but our criminal justice justice system doesn't work super well for a whole swath of people. Oh yeah, not no, not well at all for anyone. <laughs> there are certain types of infractions. Our criminal justice system is unfortunately, well, like rape and sexual assault, verbal abuse, and people otherwise being really crappy to each other. Mm-hmm. Our criminal justice system isn't prepared to handle. And so since the dawn of time, cultures who have learned not to necessarily rely on structures of power to solve their disputes have come up with other more interpersonal ways of dealing with violence. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of Quaker cultures, in Mennonite cultures, there is a type of restorative justice that is all about mediation and reconciliation between the party that has caused harm and the party that was harmed. And then the immunity that has now been redubbed as POD would be the ones to support the process. Unfortunately, if we talk about broad community, that can be a bit of a crapshoot. Sure. So the idea of restorative justice is you are restoring or you are bringing things back to a status quo. Mm-hmm. Transformative justice looks at this and says, well, that's, I guess, all good and fine, except not really. Because when you bring things back to the status quo, there is an entire systemic issue that we need to address to prevent all of the different forces that would allow this sort of thing to happen. So instead of just looking at this like individual person by individual person, how do we also zoom out and address some of the core issues? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting that when I went and looked into transformative justice, I found an article on it on restorativejustice.org where they were arguing that restorative justice was meant to do that same sort of thing, but the language wasn't as clear. And so they 
they were like, we don't care what you call it. We think these are different things. The other thing is for all of them, for all of these things, if you go look up transformative justice or restorative justice on three different websites, they will have three different definitions. And each of them will say that everyone has a sort of a different definition because it is a community-based process. And in all community-based processes, nobody owns the word. Yeah. It's the same problem we have when trying to talk about polyamory and what that quantifies as and what counts and what doesn't count. And Well, I think just using the terms, I mean, restorative means to bring back to what it was. Trans Transformative means to change. We can hardly make that argument because we've made the argument that polyamory can fairly apply to everybody, including people who are non-romantic, for instance. Mm-hmm. Right. Just because a word has an intrinsic underlying meaning doesn't necessarily mean that's how the community mm. that's built up around behind it is considering it. But I think the grain of truth there is it is more important to understand sort of the underpinnings behind it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in certain things when I talk, I can get a little bit messy with terminology technology. It's a thing I'm working on. But part of that is because I'm more interested in what those underlying structures are and how they function and letting the title come out of that. So like, I'm glad that restorative and transformative processes exist. Yeah. And I was interested that I found that when I was reading and and sort of how people are self-identifying and how they're using their own labels. Yeah. And it makes sense because the two of them are kind of interlocking and nicely dovetailing systems. Although Mm -hmm. in my experience, the expectation of restorative processes is to see if there can be a reconciliation, the harmed parties and the people harming. And I think that's definitely the most common usage of it as well. Yeah. And in a process like ours, that's not what we're trying to do. Right. And that's what you were saying is that the focus isn't on Franklin Vo at all. It's on changing the system and yes. trying to make sure these underlying structures that allow these kind of abuses mm-hmm. are addressed inside of the community yeah. is your primary goal, right? Absolutely. As part of that process, we have extended an invitation to Franklin to, mm-hmm. you know, form his own pod. And I don't remember how much you talked in your first podcast about our plan of attack and how that had formed. But before we posted our big medium post, as we had written, we had we had sent him a letter first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we said that. Part of that was as a token of goodwill because we didn't want to put the public up post up first and blindside him. Sure. We wanted to give him some time. Yeah. Because it doesn't quite matter to us whether Franklin is ever punished we just want to make sure that we're preventing future harm Mm -hmm. the vast majority of women uh, and i don't know if we have any binary folks i'll have to ask louisa are still really terrified of going public and Mm, most of them never want to be in a room with him again right in the second report we covered that you guys had released that none of the survivors want contact with franklin correct we covered the last update in our last podcast Mm -hmm. which will actually come out in three days so you haven't heard it yet but suffice it to say we just read through your (laughs) your update (laughs) and went over it focusing on the harms list because that was the most interesting thing to mm-hmm. us to talk about and i am listening to it right now and i'm kind of scared that it's gonna get me in trouble because i'm just doing a hatchet job on the general poly community during that oh where that's I'm... fun <laughs> i'm i'm basically saying what i'm basically the claim that i'm basically making is i don't know why people are surprised that someone in power is getting away with these things because we know we have all these problems like homophobia and cis-centric structures and gaslighting and unicorn hunting and those things keep persisting and no one's doing in a sense transformative justice work about it nobody's taking the lead like when you talk to people like well let's make it a space that's friendly for pocs they're like what well, already is friendly we shouldn't have to do things to attract them and you're like that's literally the opposite of making things friendly this is where i think 
the backfire effect and the Dunning-Kruger effect come into play. Mm -hmm. If there is one thing that was drilled to my head by my psychodynamic professor in grad school is that change, good, bad, or sideways, is scary and disorganizing. The bigger the change, the more disorganizing it is. When we are saying, hey, we need to completely rehabilitate Mm -hmm. this culture and we are part of a community that, you know, I identifies as people who are ethical, who are, you know, in slash not muggles to a certain degree. When we say this stuff is messed up and maybe we should look at it, we're kind of upsetting all of the apple carts. Like we're just having a cascade of fruits all over the street. By the way, if I read one more book author trying to claim that polyheople generally are smarter and more ethical than other people, I'm just going to vomit while reading that book because I'm... Yeah, so here's the thing, working with survivors of all stripes, and I mean, to be fair, by years I got my degree in 2011, so I can't pretend to be like, decades in the field, so you know what I'm talking about, right, is when it comes to abuse of power, when it comes to violence, when it comes to all of these issues, if you think it can't happen here, and you think it can't happen to you, think again, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so one of the things also be facing is something called a double closet effect that is a community that's stigmatized and marginalized and fighting for existence in this day and age and in this administration where post-SESTA-FOSTA, where so much of this work is is under attack again, right? Sure. Whenever some story of abuse or unhealthy behavior comes out, there is this kind of tone policing by the rest of the community being like, don't give our enemy munition, you have Mm -hmm. to keep this quiet. And that is incredibly dangerous. And I Can I make a little political tangent here? Go for it. One of the tropes that I'm hearing in terms of political discourse, when somebody posts something that is either slightly snarky or incredibly left-leaning, someone will inevitably Mm. come in and be like, are you trying to get Trump reelected? And to me, that's... an, an analog closet phenomenon. This idea yeah. of be, it's that that talks of respectability politics of sure. don't give our enemies ammunition. Right. I I cannot even begin to express how unbelievably harmful that mindset is, and those comments are. Yeah, no, I agree. Especially when those comments are coming from people on you know quote unquote my political side. Right. Well, and and, and those comments are aimed at getting us back to like neoliberalism, which honestly neoliberalism is almost as bad for minority communities as like pure conservatism. So I'm not interested in getting us back to that. Yeah, well, I I think about a a fantastic YouTube video by PhilosophyTube on not just what is Antifa and why are these false equivalencies false equivalencies, but what is fascism and what is it that they're trying to fight against? And one of the that PhilosophyTube makes, or Ali is, is the name of the creator, is that fascism can actually hide in liberalism. You take certain free speech arguments or that tone policing argument to a certain extreme. And when we fail to Mm -hmm. people out on bad behavior Mm -hmm. under the guise of free speech, that's one of the ways fascism can sneak into liberal societies. Fun! 
Yeah. I'm full right. of good news today. Speaking of good news, you told me you had some updates on the interactions with Franklin Vo's pod. Because the last we heard, you'd had your first contact with someone that you thought might be a pod member who yes. at least represented themselves as a pod member, but you hadn't had a larger context for that. So we know who they are now. Okay. The responses we have gotten have been rather... Not unexpected, but disappointing. A pod is technically together, but all of the correspondences we've had have involved a lot of deflection and a lot of defensiveness. Mm-hmm. And their responses have been couched in ways that requires a whole bunch of extra labor for us. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me as if the pod is operating under the more like litigious model and not the transformative justice model because there is an assumption that the invitation to bring in women's stories is us investigating and we're not being fair and we're not giving benefit of the doubt and Mm -hmm. questioning our relationships with Eve, who is currently the only survivor whose name, I believe as of this recording, is publicly attached to any stories of abuse. So uh, one of the things that I am trying to remember is that we are asking somebody to change years and years, maybe decades worth of relational patterns. Mm -hmm. So it it makes sense that this feels like an attack, even though it is not. And it's still very frustrating. Yeah, well, and the other part from another line about transformative justice from everyday feminism, and I'll post the link, but where they said that basically the approach is to repair harm through accountability practices rather than punishment. Exactly. So responding simultaneously to individual and systematic violence to transform communities and eradicate the structures that enable the violence in the first place. Yes. And so like you said, this isn't really about him but because that is the case study, for lack of a better term, that's being used to evaluate the larger poly community, there's a different kind of attack, which is an attack on his sense of self that yes. he's still very vested in defending, even if there were no punishment associated with it. That I, I can't speculate as to what is actually going on or what his motives are or what he is thinking, but... Well, I don't think that's speculation to say that most people don't think that they've abused a large portion of the population, Mm -hmm. and to say that you have is fundamentally a shift in the way you see yourself. Yes. I don't know what that shift looks like. It's definitely a huge adjustment. What it looks like, we can't speculate on because we don't have access to his interior world. Exactly. And so we're well aware that our asks are simple on their face, but by no means easy. Sure. And this is something Mandy and I jokingly, but not jokingly commented on three podcasts ago, that on the first update where the, the language coming out of his Facebook post was I'm gonna get a pod that'll hold me accountable to my standards and we were like, that doesn't sound like it's gonna be helpful because yeah. your standards haven't been working if this is a true case and now it sounds like they are doing all of the same sorts of behaviors that you were accusing him of and so it feels like they are holding him to his standards of deflection and protection and and our hope we don't actually have any 
goals, other than sure. he stop causing harm, okay, thanks, mm-hmm. is that his <laughs> pod members would hold his feet to the fire when they see those types of deflections and manipulation. So he can change those standards to be more mm-hmm. in line with what a healthy relational pattern would look like. Well, and I think that's why it's important to use transformative instead of restorative, like we said exactly. earlier. Because if we just restore it to what it was, it was obviously wrong to begin with. Exactly. So we don't want to go back to status quo. We want, you know, not only Franklin, I say we as a collective, as yeah, a community, as a community. We don't want him to him or the community to go back to status quo. No. We want we want it to be realized that there is a problem yeah. and to to change it. Yeah. And I have to say that one of the ways that I feel like our work has already been successful, even before you know most of the stories have come out, is that a number of pods and accountability pods have kind of offshoot you know, have been created as a result of this work mm-hmm. and us making it public and also Mahalko pod mm-hmm. and all of the people who put so much time and labor into that process as well. We're starting to show people that there are other ways of dealing with this. Like even within our own pod, we had posted about Pepper who will be leaving our work because he has his own accountability work to do and he did not feel like he could juggle both our work and his work. Which not that last part, but the rest of it reminds me. You guys created a PayPal pool yes. that people can donate to. Yeah. Because one of the things in that Transformative Justice article that I read was that one of the things they found out very early is that creating these pods asks an incredible amount of time, expertise, and effort of the members of that pod. Yes. And that can add up incredibly quickly as far as costs. It can be very difficult to keep participating. And sometimes when you donate, you know, you might be thinking people who are thinking about donating which we're going to ask you to donate when I get done with the spiel, might be thinking, oh, well, if I'm donating, I'm making up for time they've already given. And that's generally not the case in these contexts, in my experience. What you're going to actually be doing is if you donate money, you create more time for them. So they're going to probably give the same Mm -hmm. amount of time. But if you give more money, it's like giving more time for them to do the work. Funny you should say that. There are things that do legitimately cost money. So for example, one thing is we are hiring some outside consultants to check our work and we are paying them for their time because their time is very valuable. Mm -hmm. Also, there are certain bits of work that have been asked of me that I literally can't do unpaid. Mm -hmm. So there's stuff that I can't even really start on until... I can get paid back for that time because otherwise it's just simply too emotionally taxing. So no, you are very much not paying first time that we have already done. You are helping me and a number Mm -hmm. of other pod members do work that we currently can't do because... You're taxed. You have done so much already. That's so much that's being asked of you and it's beyond what we should be asking for individuals. We as a community need to help this transformation take place. We need to invest in this process. Yeah. You know, I have to say that I really do feel super blessed to be working with the folks in the pod that I am and while I am not happy that this happened and I while I am not happy because of the reasons why I have met these people these are just some of the most just inspiring humans I've ever met and worked with so I'm I'm grateful to every single other person who's involved in this process so that link will be in the description thank you everybody 
Please in give every money. version. Please give that money too. They're awesome. <laughs> I think you also wanted to say that you don't need a PayPal account to donate to a PayPal pool. It will allow you to donate without one. Yeah, you can choose whether or not your name is made public when you donate. For those of you who have been screwed over by SestaFosta and don't have a PayPal, never fear. There are other ways of taking your money that came out wrong. You <laughs> know other what ways I mean. that you can help. The other yes, ways you can you give can money. help with our work. And for those people who are worried you will be outed, you will not be. You can choose not to exactly. to be known to be identified. Yes. Sadly, we are we are not tax deductible, but we're worth it. We promise. <laughs> All right. Obviously, you're working with the other pod, and hopefully that will go better places. But that's not your end game. That's not the no. big push. So tell us about the big push. Yeah. So again, if nothing ever comes from that, we still have our own work. The vast majority of our mm-hmm. work, especially right now, is Louisa Leontinitis. I know I keep getting your last name wrong, Louisa. Please correct me. Adore you. You're great. She's the one who's been primarily kind of collecting and culling the stories of these women and kind of turning them into a coherent narrative. So we're slowly starting to work with some of the survivors and making sure that we are clear on what their needs and what their asks are. We can best support them. We're also doing a lot of community education, like, say, going on certain polyamory podcasts to educate people (laughs) about our work and what we do. And we appreciate that. We do very much appreciate it, as do our listeners. I'm so glad. And I, I hope that they spread this information far and wide because I hope that this extends past Franklin and that that this extends past the poly community to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. That would be great. It would be. There have been at least a couple of folks. We were at Southwest Love where we did a listening circle for survivors, which I wasn't a part of because it happened late. I had gotten back and was still jet lagged, but I I told it went well. But then also a queue with me, Ida, who's our consultant. They're one of our paid consultants in Chelsea where we fielded questions from, from audience members. And a couple people came up to me over the course of the conference and said, thank you so much. I'm going to back to my community. Like we are having this issue. We're going to see how we can do this, how I can get my own accountability pod. And that has just me with so much joy. I mean, not joy that again, these things are happening, but that we're already starting to see some of the benefits of this work. Okay. So I'm curious if you have sort of a quick summary of the changes you're calling for. The only one that I'm super clear on, or I guess there's three I'm super clear on. Mm -hmm. So one presumably is higher visibility for this idea of transformative justice, Mm -hmm. higher visibility for the accountability pod process that allows that transformative justice to happen non-violently inside of communities. Mm -hmm. And the third one that I know for sure is that you are calling for basically a creation of standards of expertise to say, okay, someone is an expert. And when I say standards, I don't mean like a certification. I mean just methods of actually checking if someone is an expert in the content they're, they're talking about rather than just assuming or agreeing that people are experts. And, and really being more mindful and more responsible of how we decide who gets a platform. Like, we are entitled to freedom of speech. No one is entitled to a platform. No one is entitled to celebrity. Right. Who and how choose to put on pedestals and just how high those pedestals are. For, for the record, we don't believe in celebrity or pedestals, period. <laughs> no. So we, we think that's just the worst. And it's a thing that <laughs> happens and people are going to admire other people and people are going to develop social relationships with folks who create things that have meaning to them. Like, that's how brains work. Well, I think I think it's important not to discount the book more than two because we know that, that Eve had a lot of 
input into this book. But as a whole, just because someone writes a book about something does not make them an expert in it. And I think that we kind of, uh, as a community, we kind of took that because their book was one of the kind of first how-to manual, what to do, what not to do resources for us. So it was, well, then he must be an expert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just, we took that. We took it too easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we really need to learn to not do that. And sometimes even when people are experts, they can still be terrible people. For example, Vessel Vanderkolk, who founded the Trauma Center in Brookline, which is in my backyard. He wrote the book, The Body Gore, which is required reading in any grunt school and required reading for anyone who ever wants to go into trauma work, period, full stop. I was initially applying for a job at the trauma center, and then it came out in the Globe that his co-writer and co-founder and CEO was horrifically abusive, and he created a toxic work environment. And the way he responded was just textbook gaslighting, and then sort of wonders letter why these people didn't come and tell him to his face. Yes, why would this person with one or two Mm -hmm. years under their belt ever make criticism about this person who is the luminary of trauma work? If anyone should know better, it would be Vessel Vanderkolk. Well, I was going to say, one of the things I was thinking is the pod now is calling for what we should do going forward. Yes as far as making these choices. And so some of the things like we took this book too easily, as as Mandy said, because we're a really new field, sort of. And so at the time, there was really nothing, not nothing, but very few things. And everything Mm -hmm. that was a book was taken. Yes. Like it was like, if you wrote a book and it was even partly had some good advice in it, like two good chapters, like we're going to take that book and cling to it because we needed context and we needed space. And I don't necessarily think that that was wrong for that time frame. But now we have such a, it's starting to become a rich field and there's enough in the field that you can start to pick and choose and you can really make these critical decisions and stop just coasting on if they wrote anything, they're good. If they presented a bunch, they're good. And actually make critical decisions and check them out and talk to other people who've done conferences and had them and said, well, were they good? Were they healthy? Were they helpful? Also able to stay within their scope of practice. So for example, just because you present on non-monogamy and relationships, that doesn't mean you're qualified about, say, abuse, which does require some specific training. One of the things that I found really problematic about Franklin was that he spoke very, very definitively about abuse, even at a conference, Mm -hmm. you know, offered a presentation. And that set off so many of my alarm bells. Wrote more than two, makes sex toys, is a mad scientist. Does that qualify you to teach on trauma? And for me, somebody who doesn't stay within their scope of practice will assume, like, I am good at X, so clearly I will be good at Y. Uh, it's a red flag. Yeah, well, and for me, even inside your scope of practice, if you th- speak, you say, like, authoritatively, if you're like, this just is the case. Yeah. No. I'm like... <laughs> I mean, obviously, I named my entire podcast about not knowing things. So I'm not inclined to think that's a good place, especially around people and relationships, because we're we're all so unique that you can't be like, this is how people react to things. And also, there are certain patterns that when I see them are like, Mm -hmm. I I can't say that I'm sure, but I've seen this movie before. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a warning sign. Yeah. It's investigate further. (laughs) Like, there are certain tactics and there are certain patterns that once you Mm -hmm. see them over and over and over again so yes this is abusive and say that be 
because all of the symptoms are there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's important also that you have all those amazing little pretty letters behind your name. Yes. Like (laughs) this is not something that I learned yesterday. Right. And it's not a hobby either. You're very, you're very schooled and learned on this subject matter. Yes. Getting to where I currently am, where I'm able to call that out more definitively came from a lot of work, a lot of study and a lot of screwing up quite frankly. And I think that's important when we're choosing people to speak on topics and books that we're going to read as resource and, you know, things of that nature. When I'm choosing presenters for Atlanta Poly Weekend, if you're applying to speak on something that's clinical, Mm -hmm. you better have some pretty little letters behind your name or you're not going to do it. Not at my conference anyway. So (laughs) as a community, we can't just let people come in and go, oh, I'm an expert on abuse. I've never been to school clinically about it. I've been abused. So that makes me an expert. Yeah. And that's not the case. Though, I mean, it it makes you an expert in your case, Mm -hmm. but not across the board. Yes. Although there are folks who have gotten arguably the same amount of education that I have had, but ad hoc, who have gone to a whole bunch of conferences and talked to people and educated themselves. But even that has a bit of a paper trail. Right. I was talking with some folks who couldn't go to graduate school because of certain disabilities and capacities that she had that would make con- going to a conference really hard. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I think, I hope I'm getting her pronoun right. Switching to they, just in case. So, so one of the... However, if you look at all of the conferences that they have gone to, all of the work that they have done, the studies they have done, the writing they have done, you know, there's still a body of work that's been done that that I think should also be counted. But that is a lot harder to gauge and measure. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. And the importance there, of course, is that access to education at higher institutions of learning is part of the power structure and the privilege structure and the oligarchy structure and heteronormativity and all the rest in America. Mm -hmm. So maybe part of our transformative work would need to be making certain types of education education more economically accessible oh that wouldn't wouldn't that be amazing (laughs) for sure we're all for that yes yeah (laughs) call your somebody call my gerrymandered sender who does not care about what i think yes there is that unfortunately i I know we're we're getting a little (laughs) bit political but again this conversation in a certain degree is inherently political because we're, we're talking about interacting with with power structures and influence mm hmm yeah. And privilege. And privilege. It's everyone's everyone's favorite talking points. Honestly, all major discussions are political. The whole notion that like, we shouldn't talk about politics, don't get political, that's inappropriate, is a way just entirely to hide behind the fact that you have preferences and beliefs that hurt a huge number of people and you don't want to have to actually face yes. that on a day-to-day basis. I, I think that there are podcasts that are like, we do not do politics, we try not to offend anybody. That's not a thing. There is no such thing as true neutrality. The question is, are you not offending power? Because you're going to be alienating a crap ton of people who will never, ever tell you because you're the hundredth person who has said that stupid shit to them that hour and they don't have time for you. I gotta admit, half the time I'm writing these, I'm scared because half the time I'm writing these, I'm saying yeah. things about things in power. And I'm like, well, <laughs> let's see how that goes. Maybe I'll still have a podcast next week. <laughs> we 
definitely cut out a lot of our political. Uh... I was talking about gaslighting in a podcast, and uh, apparently I spooked the podcaster because the episode garnered him his first one star review because I dared imply that Kavanaugh was engaging in gaslighting. And clearly this was slander when the woman coined the term Darvo, which is the type of gaslighting he was using, cited Kavanaugh as a prime example of that form of gaslighting. You were obviously on the wrong podcast. I know. I know. I know. But that was enough to be like, you know, <laughs> we don't talk about politics. Too many one star reviews. Like, dude, you got you got one. It's fine. You'll you'll live. It's fine. But Anyway, sorry, I don't mean to minimize or speak ill of somebody else. But we don't know who you're talking about. So we don't know who you're talking about. Also, I wouldn't wouldn't care if I did know who you were talking about. I wouldn't really care if you were talking about us. People are free to say the truth. Transparency, truth are important, period. But, you know, different people have different tolerances for this sort of thing. All right, well, I think that's going to be our time. And this has been really great. Thank you so much for coming out. Oh, it's so much fun. I'm glad that we made this happen. And one way or another, there will be audio, goddammit. <laughs> and I want to I take a minute to thank you and all of the other pod members for what you're doing for the survivors. It's really, really awesome that you guys are are putting time and effort into this. Again, time and effort that you're mostly not getting paid for, so please donate through the PayPal link. And then I also want to thank the survivors. Not only Eve, but the unnamed survivors as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, their stories are very important, and we hear you. So, I haven't figured out what we're going to do for next week yet, because I've been so focused on getting this interview done and getting all the updates out. <laughs> So, uh, mystery topic for next week, everybody. Uh, which mystery topic! Fun. Tune in next week to find out more. <laughs> to find out what we're actually doing. Uh, and APW is coming up. Buy your tickets. Check it out. The hotel block just came up. Get your hotel rooms. Buy your tickets. June 7th to 9th. Are the presenters mostly up? Half the presenters are. The other half. I'm going to try to get them up this week. I have surgery in two days. Oh, oh, good, good. I feel less bad because I have not sent you all of my stuff and you're still doing people, so then I'm not the only thing holding you up and that makes me feel good. Well, you're already up, though. Oh, am I? The only thing I'm waiting on for you is <laughs> your new, new photo. picture. Yeah. 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 If you guys go look at my photo, it's from like two years ago. It's before I got like long hair and a little bit of a punk look overhaul. I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, sorry, I run a conference uh, here in Atlanta called Atlanta Poly Weekend. Oh, sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the large just an oldest conference in the southeast and it's the only one on this side of the country that is family friendly oh that's super cool one of the things i appreciated about southwest love fest is they had like actual child care and yep. different child friendly pieces so it's it's cool to see that type of you know creating more accessibility you didn't quite hit child care though right there's no child care or is that child care we have year? we'll have child care this year whoa that's super exciting yeah i didn't want to false advertise but i'm excited about that yeah, we will have talk here this week. All right, week. well, bye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you, everyone, yeah. for coming. Thanks bye. So Thanks for, for your time, you. guys.